Welcome to this special Resurrection Weekend teaching. Today I want to speak to you about something all of us need. And fortunately, something God has made available to us through the most significant event in human history. To set the stage for our consideration, I want to read two passages of Scripture that offer much needed insight into today's topic. The first was written by Peter in a letter that bears his name, 1 Peter, the first chapter, the third verse. There he wrote, God, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His contemporary, the Apostle Paul, wrote this in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2 and verse 5. Even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. Today in this teaching, I want to speak to you about a rumor of hope. The American novelist Pearl Buck, winner of the Pulitzer Prize for her best-selling novel, The Good Earth, was raised the daughter of missionaries in China. There she observed the harsh realities of rural poverty and later the hideous atrocities of war. But her exposure to suffering wasn't limited to the world around her. On the home front, she daily dealt with the pain of being a perfectionistic mother raising a severely retarded daughter. Those experiences profoundly shaped her view of life and of God and of humanity. And I suspect those same experiences informed a powerful and often quoted observation she made. It comes from a work that was dedicated to her daughters. Pearl Buck said, and I quote, to eat bread without hope is to slowly starve to death. Her words echoed something that Jesus said, something that I'm sure she had read and heard repeatedly throughout her youth. Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. It was an important reminder. Our souls require hope just as much as our bodies require bread. And as you'll see in a few moments, without hope, we are literally reduced to dead people walking. Since words are nothing more than empty shells until they're packed with meaning, I'd like to suggest a definition for the word hope. I'd like to suggest that hope is the persistent persuasion that we are not permanently imprisoned by a present predicament. Let me say that again. Hope is the persistent persuasion that we are not permanently imprisoned by a present predicament. And while we all face a variety of predicaments in life, the Bible identifies the greatest predicament of all. And in no uncertain terms, it makes it clear we all face that same predicament. But thankfully, 
the Bible testimony doesn't stop there. It also promises that hope is available. It tells us how that persistent persuasion came to be available. And it's all contained in one miraculous word, resurrection. The resurrection is God's durable, lasting rumor of hope in a world of death and despair. A man named Lonnie Chapman heard that rumor, and it literally transformed his life. As a child, Lonnie was reduced to stealing from the local grocery store because his parents refused to feed him. He was beaten, locked up, and cursed by his alcoholic father. At age 12, he watched in horror as his father sexually abused his 10-year-old sister. Later, his father attempted to kill him with a piece of lumber. On another occasion, he succeeded in breaking Lonnie's fingers with a brick. Lonnie survived, but obviously his soul was deeply, deeply fractured. So Lonnie eventually dropped out of school. He landed in California, where he became fast friends with a man named Galen. And it was there that he learned the corrosive influence of bad company, because Galen was bad company. He, Lonnie, and another teen under Galen's supervision robbed a gas station. Furthermore, they kidnapped the attendant because they didn't want him to call the authorities until they had had time to distance themselves from the scene of the crime. But then they recognized they had created a problem for themselves. What would they do with the attendant? Galen insisted he had to die, and he asked Lonnie to do it. When Lonnie balked at the idea, Galen threatened Lonnie's life. And so finally, fearing for his life, Lonnie shot the attendant. Today, he's serving a life sentence for first-degree murder. But while he was in prison, Lonnie met a man named Rod Burke. Rod became familiar to him through a radio broadcast from the organization known as Youth for Christ. Rod often visited the prison where Lonnie was an inmate, and he gave Lonnie a New Testament. Lonnie read it from cover to cover, and there for the first time he encountered the rumor of hope. He surrendered his life to Christ. And today, if you were to read his probation report, you would find this very cautiously but very informative sentence. Cautiously worded but informative sentence. Quote, from conversations with the defendant and other sources, it appears the defendant has in fact undergone the Christian conversion experience, end quote. Now, that, my friends, is an understatement. Lonnie is a transformed man. He knows he'll likely spend the rest of his days behind bars, but his life now has meaning and purpose. He shares his story 
his testimony with fellow prisoners. He gives New Testaments to his cellmates. He writes letters to those on the outside that he believes he can help. And he'll tell you he found hope and life through the resurrection of Christ and that it's enough for him. In our two texts, we read these words, born again to a living hope and when we were dead. Now, what was God attempting to tell us? Through faith in Christ and through his resurrection, God offers us a life we never before possessed. And I cannot emphasize those last three words sufficiently. Never before possessed. But we have to be clear about the nature of that life and about the source of that life. It's not a modified, updated, improved version of our previous life. Far from it. It doesn't spring from within us. It's not the evolution or the release of something that has been lying dormant in our spirits. The Bible doesn't say God draws our life out of us. It doesn't promise that as we are enlightened, our previously undiscovered life will begin to emerge. It doesn't say God will enable us to recognize the divine potential within us and tap into that potential. The Bible doesn't suggest that we'll uncover or discover life by studying world religions or the religious experiences of others and then crafting our own unique spirituality. The Bible says none of that. It says, and I quote, God made you alive. God made you alive in Christ when you were dead in sin. God's Word makes it clear that prior to the new birth, none of us is alive, let alone spiritual, although we like to claim we are both. The truth is we begin life as the walking dead, spiritually dead, because our spirit isn't capable of functioning as God intended. Our stubborn bent towards sinful rebellion and the sin we all engage in separates us from God, and God is the source of life. And when you're separated from the source of life, you'll find yourself dead in sin. In that condition, Scripture makes it clear. We are incapable of knowing God. We are incapable of loving God. We are incapable of understanding God. And we are incapable of living our life in alignment with God's original intent for us. His truth appears foolish to us. We can't comprehend it, let alone walk in it. That's why the Bible reserves the term spiritual for those who have been born again and only uses that term in reference to those who have been born again. All others 
they're referred to as being dead. So again, the new life isn't an updated version of your old life because you can't update death. And the new life isn't discovered through dialogue with people who have not been born again. That's just dead people comparing notes. Scripture's clear. The new life God so graciously offers is the result of our placing our intentional faith in Jesus and what he accomplished in his resurrection. That alone opens the door to recover life. Let me illustrate the profound, very real difference between false spirituality and resurrection faith because they are not friends. They are eternal opponents and adversaries. The former political operative and convicted felon Charles Colson stepped out of his spiritually dead condition the day he placed his faith in Christ and the resurrection. And he became an ambassador for Christ and the founder of Prison Fellowship prior to his death. Colson was once speaking in India where the crowds wanted to hear the dramatic story of his conversion, his turnaround. When he recounted what Christ had done in his life, that predominantly Hindu audience nodded in approval. You see, Hindus believe all paths, all roads lead to God, and that Jesus is just one of those paths. But when Colson spoke of the reason for his faith, the resurrection, all of their approval came to an abrupt halt. The crowd would not go there with Colson. I want you to put yourself in Athens 25 years after Jesus' death. You consider yourself a spiritual person. You listen respectfully to the religious experiences of others. Sometimes, you hear things you incorporate into your own life. Other times, you hear things that don't interest you, but you're fine in others embracing them. Then one day, the much-publicized, controversial Christian apostle known as Paul walks into the coffee shop where you're sharing a latte with friends, and he joins your discussion. He tells you, I worship Jesus Christ a teacher who lived in Palestine 25 years ago. He was an advocate for love and truth. And his teaching and his examples have changed my life profoundly. How would you respond? Well, you would likely respond with tolerance. Paul has his spirituality, you have yours. But what if Paul said this, and he did say this, God commands all to repent, for one day Jesus will judge the world. And his resurrection verifies that. Now that's what Paul said in Acts 17. How do you think your, you and your friends would respond then? You would likely protest. You would probably be offended. Talk of only one way and judgment and resurrection 
That's not respectful. That's not tolerant. That's not acceptable in dialogue about religious experience. And the scene I've just described is exactly what transpired between the Apostle Paul and the Athenians. And as soon as he mentioned the resurrection, they parted ways with him and mocked him. The Athenians mocked Paul. The Hindus stopped listening to Colson. And it's a reminder that the gospel message of faith in a resurrected Christ is offensive and even scandalous in an age of moral relativism and subjective designer make-your-own-spirituality. You see, the resurrection socks us right between the eyes. It says we're dead. It says we'll remain dead. It says we can't do anything about that condition and that we need Jesus and his resurrection, that that's our only hope of getting out of our predicament. Now, contrary to a rather popular misconception, you don't need to be destitute to recognize your need of Jesus. Those without faith don't all appear like Lonnie Chapman before his new birth. In some people's case, the effects of spiritual death, well, they're virtually invisible. In others, they're painfully obvious. Let me illustrate. During his earthly ministry, Jesus raised people from the dead on three different occasions. The first was a young girl who had passed just moments earlier. The second was a widow's son whose body was about to be buried. And the third was Lazarus. His buried body had already started to undergo decay. Now to the human eye, the effects of death were invisible in the first case, somewhat visible in the second, and obvious in the third, but they were all equally dead. And so are we apart from the new birth. Whether we find ourselves in a corner office or the corner cell, whether we're famous or forgotten, rich or poor, educated or deprived, we all start life dead without Christ. And our only hope is the Christ who proved all of his claims by means of his resurrection. And through his resurrection, defeated death for us so that it might be defeated in us. Many folks miss God's rumor of hope simply because of how it's packaged. It comes wrapped in a blunt-edged, but nonetheless loving affront to our pride an imaginary self-sufficiency. It comes as the gift of God. We can't earn it. We can't make ourselves worthy of it. We can't add to it. We can't complete it once God starts it. All we can do is humbly receive it. We can't develop it on our terms. We can only receive it as it is offered by God. So let me leave you with this final thought the hope we all need, and the destiny of our souls 
is not tied to the fickle, ever-shifting, and fleeting feelings of our hearts. It's tied to a fact of history. And friend, make no mistake, the resurrection is not a myth. It is a fact of history. Jesus was seen by over 500 people at the same time. 500 people do not have the same hallucination simultaneously. The transformation of Christ from victim to conqueror of death was so dramatic that those who witnessed it were willing to die rather than stop proclaiming it. No, it's a fact of history. And the Christian faith is not just another human approach to God. It is the only approach to God because it is grounded in that fact of history, the resurrection. Because Jesus lives, we don't have to remain locked in the predicament of spiritual death for eternity. We can live spiritually now and have our physical life restored to us in the future forever and ever and ever. My close friend and administrative assistant, a woman named Sharon White, several years ago went through a horrific 12-month period during which she buried first her son, then her two grandsons, and finally her husband. A year later, as the Christmas season approached, Sharon was very heavy at heart, though she hadn't yet communicated that to me. And one day, when she was feeling despondent, and I was totally unaware of it, I just felt led to hang a Christmas ornament on the cork board in her office. It wasn't a great magnanimous gesture. Somebody had given this ornament to me, and I just didn't have a place for it. It's the word hope. And so I put in a thumbtack and hung the word hope on that cork board. Sharon later confided in me that she came into the office that day despondent. And the first thing that greeted her was the word hope. And God used this simple ornament and the profound reality that it speaks of to lift her out of her discouragement and into expectation of a brighter future. And she has found that brighter future in Christ. Have you found yours? If you haven't, I want to invite you to do a very simple thing. I want to invite you to simply pray and ask Jesus to lift you out of death and into life. Tell him that you confess him as your Lord and that you're convinced of his resurrection. Because here's what his word says. If you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, God will give you life. And then the rumor of hope will become an eternal reality in your life. That's my prayer for you, and I pray you'll discover it this resurrection weekend. God bless you.